The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, he's been called one of the most original and inventive poets of his era. And yet, in some ways, he was out of step. Many of the leading post-war poets of the 1950s and 60s were turning to what became known as confessional poetry. Robert Lowell, Anne Sexton, Sylvia Plath, and W.D. Snodgrass, chief among them. But John Ashbery found a different path. Sort of. His truths were his own, and they were drawn from his inner life, and they were bold and brave, but not quite transparent. His confessionals are hidden, masked, refracted. Confessional poetry, but through a glass darkly. Just how did he come to write these poems? What exactly was he trying to do? And how should we approach them today? We'll talk to Jess Cotton of the University of Cambridge about her book, John Ashbery, A Critical Life, today on The History of Literature. Okay, hello everyone. How are you? Happy October. As you all know, this is my favorite month. Every single day in October is like a gift. Even the few we've had so far here in Washington, D.C., which have been too hot for October. I like my days cool and gusty, but that weather is on the way. What we do have is that wonderful October light. It's like the light itself is seen through a, a transparency seen through a very thin orange leaf. At least that's how it seems to me, at least at certain times of the day. So, we've got poetry on the schedule today with John Ashbery, a great poet, one of Mike's favorites. Let's just tee things up with a little Emily Dickinson. I don't think either John A. or Jess C. will mind that we take this little pause. We're working our way through the selection of poems made by critic Helen Vendler, which means we jump today from 187 to 194. And the first thing one notices about Dickinson's poem 194 is that the format is unusual for her. The short lines are even shorter. Just three words, some of these lines. A few others are four, five. I think a couple are six. It doesn't have to be... It uh, doesn't have to be... It doesn't have to be longer. Not with Emily. It doesn't have to be stanzas. No. It doesn't have stanzas. That's what I meant to say. That's unusual. Different from the poems we've looked at lately. It does have 14 lines, which sends everyone's sonnet antenna twitching. Yes, yes, 14 lines. It could be a sonnet given that, the number of lines, but it's not one you'd find in Shakespeare, let's say. It's all Emily. Let's have it. Well, before we begin, let's set the stage a bit. What does it mean when someone says they're married to Christ? Have you heard that expression or that they've saved themselves for Jesus? We know Emily didn't do that, didn't consider herself married to Christ, and she didn't actually get married, literally married, either. In this poem, she's writing from that little New England house in that tiny upstairs bedroom of hers, a little wooden cell, and her imagination is running wild. She crosses whole universes in that little wooden room. 
Her mind roams, expanding like a bird, sprinting across the grass before beating its wings and taking flight. Here we go, 194. Titled the vine is mine, the wife without the sign. Acute degree conferred on me, Empress of Calvary. Okay, let's pause there. First four lines, the traditional stanza, A-A-B-B, if you're looking for rhyming schemes, but I focus on content. She is, this is uncharacteristic for her, even in a mock heroic way. She's declaring herself to be the Empress of Calvary. Calvary, where Christ was crucified. No wife accompanied the king of the Jews when he was on his journey to the cross, suffering as he was. Well, here's Emily to step into the role. Not the queen of the Jews, which I think might be a bit too on the nose for what she's trying to get at. That might imply somebody walking along right there on the scene, married to the historical Jesus as if she's she's asking us to envision, well, what if he did have someone in support? What if he did have a wife? That, that's not what she's going for here. I think this is more like a spiritual marriage, and it's a little tongue-in-cheek. We don't think she's taking herself too seriously, do we? She's an empress, inventing this title for herself. She's in a world of metaphor and thought experiment, and she's making a point. And I'm going to explain a little later what I think she's actually marrying here. Okay, back to the poem. Royal, all but the crown, betrothed, without the swoon, God sends us women, when you hold garnet to garnet, gold to gold. So those are rings she's talking about there. Holding hands, garnet to garnet, gold to gold. Husband and wife holding hands. That's, a, that's the wedding that other women have. You. That's what you have, she's saying. Not Emily, the Empress of Calvary who is royal, even if she doesn't have a crown. No ring, no crown, and no swoon. I suppose swoon could mean several different things here, but I tend to view it as sex, as in having it, as in having it on one's honeymoon or wedding night. No sexual culmination here, and no ring in this marriage. And, as we're about to hear, no something else. Born, bridled, Shrouded in a day, my husband, women say, stroking the melody, is this the way? That's it. That's the end of the poem. I'll confess I have a reading of this ending and of the last line in particular that I'm not 100% confident in. It's not totally clear to me, but I have some thoughts. Is what the way? Is this the way? What is this referring to? Well, Vendler thinks it's the saying of the words, my husband. And that's a good reading of the poem. But let's back up a bit. Born, bridal. So we have the first two stanzas where she says, I'm the Empress of Calvary. The title, the that divine title is mine. I'm a wife without the sign, probably a wife without a ring. It's an acute degree that's been conferred on me. I'm the Empress of Cal Calvary. I always want to say Calvary there. We're not talking about 
horses showing up to save the day and soldiers on horses. We're talking about Calvary, where Christ was crucified. Okay, she says, I'm the empress of that place and that experience. She says, I'm royal. I have everything but the crown. And I'm betrothed, betrothed to what I will explain, not just to Jesus, but but something else, betrothed without the swoon that God sends us women when you hold garnet to garnet, gold to gold. So maybe swoon here isn't just sexual culmination, but that feeling women get when they get married, when they're, when you are holding hands, rings, that, that moment you have at an actual wedding. I don't have that, she says. I've got a different kind of marriage. I don't have that. And then she says, born bridal shrouded in a day. That's, that's good stuff there. Your whole life <laughs> compacted into one wedding day. Born, married, dead. Born, bridled, shrouded. White. White everywhere. White blankets, white dress, white shroud. All in one. And the wedding itself, that's, it's like the wedding day itself, right? Wake up, you're born, get married, and then have sex. Or the little death, as Shakespeare would call it. This is kind of an outsider's view of a wedding day. You could say the death is the death of your old self, your pre-married self. Or you could say marriage is the end of something. What a way to look at a marriage, at conventional marriage. Not the marriage of someone who is getting married. And here's where I'll tell you what I think she means by getting married, by being the Empress of Calvary. I think she's, she's getting married to the suffering of Christ at Calvary. Born, bridled, shrouded in a day. Married to Christ. Not marrying Christ. Nobody in the 19th century could marry Christ, obviously. They're coming a couple of millennia too late. Almost almost two millennia too late, but she's not talking about being husband and wife with Jesus or the ghost of Jesus. She's marrying the suffering of Christ at Calvary. She's saying, I'll be the chief martyr in his name, in his spirit, for him. I'll dedicate a life to that and call myself the empress of that place and that time and that historical event and that feeling that it inspires and that meaning that it represents. What will I be giving up? Here's where we come to the last lines. I won't be saying my husband the way my friends and loved ones and neighbors do when they're married. When they say it, stroking the melody, making the words poetic through the love and affection and respect and maybe even awe in their hearts. The awe that being married inspires. That feeling of, wow, my husband, I'm married. Here's a person who's in this relationship with me. We're united, husband and wife, my husband. And Emily is saying, I can be an empress of something hugely monumental. The crucifixion itself, way beyond any earthly concerns. Transcendent but I won't get to say the words, my husband, with that lilt in my voice. And I'll even ask my listeners, my readers, those who hear this poem, 
in their minds if I'm saying the words right. That's what I'll ask them. Is this the way? The way you say it? My husband, did I say it right? It's not important how she says it or how I say it in reading the words, trying to channel what she's getting at here. It's important to see that the the author of the poem, the narrator of the poem, recognizes that she, being unmarried, feels uncertain that she might not be saying those words, my husband, with the right emotion that wives use when they say the words. She's heard it. She's detected this in those words as they say it. My husband. What a poet's conception. What a poet's conception. <laughs> I don't... She's saying, okay. Okay, I can go down this road. I can imagine I'm not, I'm not married. I can imagine I'm married to Christ or to Christ's suffering. I'm devoting my life to that. Okay, so I don't get a crown. Who cares? I don't get a ring. Who cares? But I don't get to say the words, my husband, the way that brides around me do with the musicality I've heard. I don't swoon to hold hands and put ring to ring. I'm an empress. I'm not jealous of much, but I'm jealous of that. Jess Cotton and John Ashbery are next. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Jess Cotton, who is an early career fellow at the University of Cambridge. She writes on 20th century literature, psychoanalysis, feminism, and the practices of reading, and she's here today to discuss her book, John Ashbery, part of the Critical Live series by Reaction Books. Jess Cotton, welcome to the History of Literature. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So I thought we might start with the phrase, everybody's autobiography. Where does that phrase originally come from? Yes. That phrase is from Gertrude Stein. Mm. She's an avant-garde writer at the beginning of the 20th century and a real eccentric. So she was a kind of expat American who lived for much of her life in Paris. And uh, she was really kind of doing some 
experimental, interesting things mm-hmm. with. And she writes this book in 1937 called Everybody is Autobiography. And she also kind of writes another book called The Autobiography of Alice B. Topless. Right. So she writes this book that's meant to be about her partner, that's really about her own life. Mm-hmm. So really, mm-hmm. at the center of both of these books is that trying to completely kind of change how we think of autobiography, trying to find a way of telling stories about our life that are not just about ourselves, essentially, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. So it's kind of playful. It's kind of saying, what if I told you my life, but tell you it's kind of yours? Or, you know, what would it look like if we were to tell the story of all our lives? And what does that mean for autobiography and also fiction? Um, so, I mean, I, I guess it's like a concept. It's kind of tantalizing and appealing and slightly, you know, crazy. It's worth saying that kind of reading Stein's prose is kind of work in it. It's really strange prose. She repeats herself a mm. lot. Mm-hmm. Just trying to find a new way to think differently about forms. Um, what it means to tell a life story, essentially. Right. It's kind of like we have now, we're very familiar with the concept of a mockumentary. After getting all of these documentaries that were told in a very serious and and sober way and had a very distinct style and everything, and then the mockumentary was there to kind of upend that a bit and say, well, what if it seems like a documentary, but we're actually inventing something new here? Or I'm guessing that Stein was probably writing out of a tradition where there were a lot of autobiographies being published and, and they had kind of a particular format and everyone kind of knew how they were going to march through someone's life from point A to point Z or point Z. And it, it she would be able to kind of use that form as a way of creating something new and, and kind of making you think about, well, what do we want from autobiographies? What are they supposed to say? And what does it mean if somebody is using that form but subverting it in some way? Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's the great summary of exactly what she's trying to do. And as you were saying, that the idea of marching through this life is absolutely what she's trying to kind of shift. Um, mm. As you say, that there was a kind of very kind of distinct model of what an autobiography looked like and what an autobiography would have been marketed as and how it would have been consumed. And obviously, as the kind of 20th century has progressed, the memoir form and autobiography has become a more and more kind of popular genre in many ways. And so she's kind of very much, as you suggest, kind of playing with that. And to go back to this idea of the mock documentary, yes, creating this new form, this new genre out of something that feels so familiar and recognizable. So as you started kind of speaking, I was thinking about kind of like the pastiche or satire. And it's not that. It's kind of playful and it's it's ironic in in slight ways. but, But it's also just trying to kind of do something new that is also quite kind of serious. It's finding a way, a new kind of genre within something that's already been kind of very well mapped out. And obviously this has kind of like implications. If autobiography is about how we think of a life story, it's also kind of allowing for different kinds of life to be recognized. Mm-hmm. You refer to it in your introduction as a queer model of autobiography. Yeah, yeah. I have worked on queer theory, which is basically as a kind of theoretical lens tries to kind of shift how we think about the normal but obviously it's also kind of interested in queer subjects so subjects who either identified as homosexual or who led kind of quote-unquote queer lives and so I think certainly kind of running through Ash Ruth's work is this real sense of wanting 
to create a literary form that would allow you to tell these lies and to kind of see these lies, to find a form for lives that hadn't really found articulation in narrative form because they didn't go from A to Z, as you said, because right. they didn't conform to the marriage plot. There was no kind of neat bourgeois life story. They mm-hmm. were kind of sideways. They were kind of trying to find new ways to think about how one might inhabit this time that we have on the world. Right. And so for a person who's living kind of outside what might be viewed as a normal life or a traditional life, they would be saying, well, I'm going to write an autobiography, but it wouldn't make sense if I did it the way you're expecting me to do it, because my life hasn't been lived like that. There are gaps and there's omissions and things that have had to be concealed or things that you wouldn't expect. And so the form doesn't make sense. So I'm going to kind of invent this new form that's going to let me come at this topic of my life from sort of a sideways position, kind of like Gertrude Stein says, I'm going to write the story of my life, but I'm going to call it the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas. You know, right there, how can you have an autobiography where you yourself are not the writer of it? it she's kind of saying, well, this is going to be a different way of telling a narrative. This is going to be my way of telling the narrative. Yeah, absolutely. And as you were talking, I was thinking both of this idea of I think this idea of the omissions and ellipses in in writing and in life is really important to science and Ashbury's writing. Mm. And also this idea of paradoxes and oxymorons, that they ask us to uphold the impossible. And that's some of the excitement and the challenge of reading their work in a sense. What does it mean to, as far as we understand it, an autobiography by its definition cannot be of someone and yet relates to someone else's life. That, that is like abuse of the contract, the literary contract of autobiography. Right. So both kind of writers are really asking us to think outside of that relationship between the, the law of literature and what might be represented, essentially, and to play with those rules of representation in ways that are really entertaining and, and illuminating um, and a little bit baffling sometimes. Right. As we shift and kind of get closer to Ashbury here, we also have the notion of confessional poetry. Now, this is sort of related to autobiography. I see why you were linking the two in your introduction, because one of the things that that people would come to expect from an autobiography, a conventional autobiography, is that it would be a kind of a confession of sorts. But Ashbury's writing in an era where confessional poetry has really become prominent. And I was wondering if you could just talk about that a little bit. What exactly was a confessional poem and how dominant was it in this era? Who was practicing it? And what was sort of the context when Ashbery started to write his poetry? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I mean, I, th- I think some of the easiest ways to think about the questions that you've just raised in broad brush strokes is that the confessionals was a kind of a mainstream poetry. And it's worth mm. saying that this is, this is a label that was attached. So this guy called Emma Rosenfeld writes this 1959 review of Robert Lowell's Life Studies. Mm. And so he kind of wrote this new genre of poetry as confessional. So it's not something that these group of poets that include Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton and Robert Lowell are writing within. But it's something that's associated with this new real interest privacy and in mm. life story mm-hmm. and in divulging one's private life in this way. And so I think it's, 
It's also a project that's quite closely linked to academic institutions and literary institutions in this East Coast. So, and with also the kind of main magazines like the New Yorker, for example. So the kind of mainstream version of this poetry is a, a vehicle for autobiography in this quite straightforward way, in a, a little bit of an A to Z way, which is one way to think about Robert Lowell's life, at least to a certain extent, and to some of his other collections. But I, I think there's some ways that we can think about this historically, contextually, which is that this is the Cold War playing out. Mm. And there's also this rise of kind of media culture in a way that there's this new fascination with the self. So in a way that it's obvious that poetry would also be interested in the personal in a new way. And both, I suppose, policing of private life that goes on in these decades. Right. But at the same time, it's obviously also engaging with this new interest in personal performance. And, you know, one thing I often say to my students is that, yes, this is confessional, this, we can read this as a confession, but it is also a kind of performance and confession. Mm. This is a performance of that life story. So I think, I think that's also a useful thing to always bear in mind, because it is a performance of confession. And also in the 1950s, you had this interaction in psychoanalysis. A lot of these poets were in psychoanalysis, and so they're used to telling their life stories. That becomes a new kind of way of thinking about how one might present the self in poetry, essentially. So this was some of the mainstreams. And obviously, if you paint these broad brushstrokes, there was obviously lots of different things, different poetry movements that were going on across the country. But this is one of the dominant mainstreams. Trends right. that was in the background against which Ashbury and he belonged to this band of poets who were called the New York School, so which also included Frank O'Hara and Kenneth Coke and James Schuyler, who would position themselves against in many ways. Because they saw themselves as the cool kids, or they were aligned with the New York School with the art world and the confessionals were not not the traditionals so much as but a little bit like the establishment to some degree. Yeah. yeah. And the idea, I guess, is, you know, poetry, it's not going to be poets who are out on the the grassy meadow observing the the sun playing across the blades of grass and writing beautiful poems in perfect meter <laughs> that kind of describes the nature or something like that. But it's going to be people who are writing about childhood trauma or mental illness or sexuality or sort of the deep and raw and human emotions, but did it also come with a kind of biographical element? Did they, I mean, did people, was it accompanied by interviews and articles and stories where the poets were expected to, the, the, I guess, readers wanted to, to know more about the poets' lives? And, you know, did this actually happen to this person? Or what is what was his childhood like? Or was she in an institution for a while? Or, I, I mean, was it, we kind of have that now. I'm wondering if that was part of the game in the 1950s. Yeah, it's a really good question. Because in a sense, this is really the rise of a certain kind of magazine culture. I mean, I mean, Sylvia Flack is obviously the, the, the perfect example of all of this because she was writing for the magazine. She then becomes the kind of center of literary and scholarly and media interest on both sides of the Atlantic. But you have this new, I think I, I was been talking about the kind of performance itself, but also like performance of being a poet, right? Mm, mm-hmm. So in the past, poetry was something that happened in universities and the ivory towers, but poetry in the media is quite significant and so there was this need and necessity to explain poets work and i mean this is partly due also to the yeah, the rise of the radio the rise of mm. yeah mm-hmm. 
mainstream magazines' interest in poets. And the rise of the interview was a form, I think, as well. And so there was more and more of demand or pressure. And of course, then you get slowly, slowly the kind of rise of MFA teaching, which also there is this new desire to explain the work. So also writing workshops, Robert Lowell and Anne Sexton and Sylvia Plath were all attending the same kind of, well, Robert Lowell was often kind of leading them. But they were moving the same circles and they were talking about their work. Yeah, I think the autobiographical element of the work was also its selling point to a certain degree. Mm, you know, mm-hmm. was, we often think of poetry and money as in opposition because we know that poetry doesn't sell. But I think there is this underlying sense that what you were getting was not so much just the poetry, but also the poet and the construction of that persona right. really kind of takes over in a certain way. Right. We haven't mentioned Freud, but I'm I'm guessing a lot of this was <laughs> running right alongside the Freud and, and psychoanalysis and poets would be at the forefront of the the effort to dig deep and to really understand what's underneath everything and to come back with the news from Freud. A lot of Freud is almost like a detective work where you're unlocking the keys to everything. And I'm guessing that the confessional poets were probably viewed within that context as well. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. If you read Robert Lowell, he talks about, you know, reading Freud and also being at the Payne Whitney Clinic in New York and his own experience with psychoanalysis psychotherapy and his reading of Freud unlocks his understanding of his childhood and so which results in the writing of life studies. So there is this really kind of intimate relationship here between psychoanalysis and literature and I think I mean there's one thing which is reading there can be an overdetermined reading of these poets in terms of the tropes of psychoanalysis that we have obviously they're often playing on these Oedipal narratives but it was this real discovery of the self that happened in this new way through psychoanalysis in general culture, but also through private clinics, but also drives this new way of writing. Mm. And Sexton, Robert Lowell, they're often the transformative moment comes through the clinic and they're thinking of dialogue with their psychiatrist or their psychoanalyst. They're thinking about their history, their, their relationship to their self and then using and writing about that. And so it's this new autobiographical turn is very much driven by that new popularization of psychoanalysis. Okay, so enter John Ashbery. How did he view the relationship between his life and his poetry? Yeah, so, I mean, quite unlike these guys, or in, in many ways, they were like mainstream, so he's positioning himself in opposition to that to some degree. Ashbery really kind of keeps his life out of his poetry. I mean, to go on the most basic terms, but it's always there. Um, informing some of the anecdotes and certainly his autobiography from the start and um, from his early collection, some trees especially, there's this idea of like the child Ashbury, this interest in this precocious young poet growing up. But he's very much on the sidelines. There's certainly none of this psychoanalytic interest in the South, which is to say informal or, you know, everything we've just been discussing about this divulgence about you would never get a poem, an essay poem that's set in a psychiatric clinic. And so I think for him to kind of focus on the self in a detailed way is to, to make the art about life rather than life about art, if that kind of makes sense. Mm, right. He said at one point that some of the passages are autobiographical and some of them sound autobiographical. Yes, I mean, this is typically very playful and teasing on these questions. I think there's another line in it 
interview where he talks about that he's working towards a zero degree of autobiography. So, yeah, he's basically playing with the readers he does in many of his poems. And he's both suggesting that there are autobiographical references here, but that it would both be a mistake to focus on them. But of course, that all art or poetry is created out of life. So of course, those autobiographical resonance are there everywhere. Right. Thinking about Gertrude Stein again, I'm kind of reminded of the opening of The Catcher in the Rye, where the narrator, Holden Caulfield, says, you know, you're probably going to want to hear all where I was born and and how old I was and and all that David Copperfield kind of crap. And he's saying, you know, I know this is what you want, and I am... I, I don't think I have to give it to you, and I don't think it's the best way to tell the story that I want to tell. And it almost seems like Ashbery is doing something similar in saying, you know, when you read his quotes about what he thinks his poems should be and how autobiographical they are, he seems to be saying, I don't think that is necessary for poetry, and I don't think that it's the best, it's something that I want to do. It's it's not how I want to share my life. I'm coming at this from a, a different point of view, maybe a more artistic point of view, but I'll I'll use my life, but on my own terms. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting, the, the Catching My reference, because we've got, you know, it's a kind of unreliable narrator, right? Yeah. You know, how much slippery. And this kind of performance of youth, this performance of self, and it's very hard to ever know. But, but of course, you know, that there's something tantalizing about that. And everything that's interesting about that book is precisely comes out of the uncertainty of not knowing exactly whether this is the authoritative version of the self. But of course, you know, with The Catch in the Rye and well, Ashbury's work, you know, they're, they're both playing on these conventions of what is expected of autobiography. Mm. And we trust a, a reader and, and what we take away from it. And there's a gun freedom in coming away from that narrative, which is very fixing in many ways. It's hard to think of a Sylvia Plath or a Robert Lowell poem outside of their persona. But there is Ashbury's work. You read an Ashbury poem and it's not obvious necessarily. Speakers have that slightly tantalizing. Often they're telling you a story. And that's one of the interesting things uh, in this mode of like the storytelling you'd expect from narrative. And they're often asking you to entertain the fact that they might be giving you a version of the truth, I suppose, rather than telling it straight. Let's take a quick break and then come back with more from Jess Cotton. Okay, we're back. So I'm interested in what this is going to mean for you as a biographer. But before I ask that question, let's get a little bit more about Ashbery and his project on the table. Did he think that he could get at a greater sense of truth by playing with autobiography in this way? Or was he trying to protect himself and, and hide something or or try to have some privacy? Or what was motivating him? And and how did that end up translating itself into his poetry? I think there is some interesting, some useful context to bear in mind, which is question is probably not entirely uh, answerable. But I think there are some things that we can think about, which is, first of all, the Cold War, the Lavender Scare, which is to say, mm-hmm. certainly the early decades of 
Ashbury's publishing life risky to talk about his life as a gay man in America in McCarthy era. So mm-hmm. that means the pre-Stonewall period. So I think there is a sense in which, you know, actually publicizing this privacy would have been risky. And the majority of the confessional poets, and this is no coincidence, were lived very heterosexual lives. So that performance was also part of that Cold War narrative of domesticity. But I think that there's something even, it's not like, I think Ashley was more outspoken in his later years. I'm not sure even his sexuality, not an issue that he would have written necessarily. I mean, you know, these are multiple questions to hypothesize, but I don't think that he would necessarily have written differently. But I think his interest was in trying to think of a new way of expressing relationships between life and art. And he was very much interested in the French poets, in surrealist poets, in avant-garde writers who were doing something innovative and different. And I think for Ashbury, it would always be to, to write straight autobiography would be too, almost too simple, that he's interested in eccentric things, mm-hmm. in things that are kind of slippery, um, in ways that people don't conform to certain ideas that we have about each other. But I think there's also a, a generosity to this desire to, you know, I think that he's also trying to write in a quite general language. Um, I know that some Americans often say that I focus on the American aspects of Ashbury to their surprise. And I, that might be coming from, you know, by this position. But, you know, that he is interested in this general language of America in trying to, not necessarily patriotic, but nonetheless get at the sense of the American grain of what it means, the ordinariness of kind of language, um, mm. of representing everyone's daily experience. And to focus on the South, I mean, I've just said that the majority of these confessional poets were heterosexual, but they were also generally white and middle class, which isn't to say that Ashbury was. <laughs> um, but like there was a very set way of being and writing literature. And to write, I think Ashley was looking for something that was that was more about something, I don't know if ordinary is quite the right word, but was really trying to capture something about the American language in its most generic sense at different moments. Right. Yeah, might come back to this, but why I kind of think that it's kind of useful. I mean, maybe too simple, but to approach his work through the decade. I suppose a tantalizing idea, but capturing the spirit of a certain decade seems important to his work, or at least to kind of reading it historically. Right. Well, how do you navigate this as a biographer? Where does all of this leave you? I, do you have to take his his own sort of attitude towards autobiography and what he conveyed about his life and what he conveyed that sounded like it was about his life but wasn't? How do you make your way through all that as you're setting forward the events of his life or trying to tell the story of his life when you've got all of this background of of poetry he's written that may or may not be true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I suppose that is like the challenge. And, and one thing that, that I found, I suppose the biggest challenge that I was trying to wrestle with is that I wanted to make Ashley's work as accessible and mm. um, ordinary for the general reader. I mean, certainly my impression of first coming across Ashbury was that he was intimidatingly difficult and I wouldn't have a language to talk about this work. So I wanted to talk about the things, the subjects, the topics that he was getting at, which is very unfashionable. And a few decades ago, the critic Helen Venler said, well, everyone talks about the style of Ashbury's writing, but no one talks about the subject matter. Mm. And there was a general sense that it was too elusive, too vague. But that left out and and I think there's still a general sense that it's a bit basic to talk about subject matter that you because you overdetermine it. But I wanted to try and suggest some historical, cultural, social context 
that would give the journal reader, just of course always a, <laughs> a fictional construct, a nice grasp poem, which isn't hopefully doesn't overdetermine it, but allows some parallels to be drawn between the life and the art. Um, at the same time, I was trying to bear in mind that Ashbury's slipperiness um, and his desire not to be pinned down. I mean, the question of whether, I suppose I kind of say quite explicitly throughout the book, you know, identifying as a queer poet, and that seems important. I mean, I suppose using the word queer here is a way of thinking and um, slightly more expansively than just a gay poet, because the intention is always to think outside of normative context. So I found that useful, but again, there is a certain risk in, I suppose, in craving work in this way. That was something that I felt, in part because that I had done some scholarly research and that was my background. So it felt natural for me to pursue that line of, of thought in some ways. I think this idea of querying the biography is really at the heart of its work, I think. I guess I do believe that. Um, that is a position I want to stand by. To, to stand by any position always feels risky with his writing wants to be kind of paradoxical and not to pin anything down, but still want to give the reader student a sense of where they could begin to take a reading, I suppose. Right. I think I see the dilemma. On the one hand, you have the position that Wendler was describing where it reminded me of the what they used to say about John Updike, that he had nothing to say and nobody's ever said it better. And sort of the feeling that it was all style, that it was, there was no substance really there. Just so the only way to really read it or analyze it would just be to kind of focus on the style because there's nothing there. And you don't feel that way about Ashbery. But on the other hand, he himself is kind of sitting there saying, okay, I'm not going to be one of those poets who I'll write a poem and then I'll write an essay saying where I was and what I was referring to and and how this, you know, what exactly this means. And there's sort of a one for one equation between the poem and my life. And so you've kind of got that as another potential pitfall for a biographer. And so what you're trying to do is to find the substance that lives within these poems, even though it might not be intuitive or it might not be apparent or it might not be obvious, but it's there. And sometimes you have to look at the gaps or the omissions or the the illusions or the stretches between reality and poetry in order to find it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was just before this conversation, I was just rereading Ashbury's poem, Wakefulness. It all takes place in this kind of dream landscape. And it has this great opening line in, in modest little white wine, some scattered serifs. So, you know, in my head, I can imagine him waking up a bit hungover. And so I do have this image of the poet himself in this quite concrete position. And then the poem just goes somewhere else entirely. And then it comes back. It goes in and out of this dream world, really. It's almost like to think too logically or to pinpoint the poem would be to kind of reduce that sense of mystery and the complexity of the ideas in the poem. Did you feel like, as you wrote the biography, that you had gotten at John Ashbery, that you understood him, or were you finding that you were just understanding aspects of him, or you would see flashes of his his true self, or you were sort of making connections, but overall he remained elusive? Ah, well, it's, it's interesting, because I think I have like two ideas. Ashbery the poet, I felt like I was had a good kind of hold on. Ashbery mm. the self? no idea of. Really? Yeah. I mean, I suppose my aim wasn't, you know, it is a biographical study, so it's 
the aim was to illuminate the work probably more than the life to a certain extent. But I think the revealing moments of Ashbury, the staff came through some interviews I did with people who knew Ashbury and they had these anecdotes. And it was that moment that this sense of a person kind of like jumped through, yeah, the persona that's created. I suppose if you immerse yourself in a writer's work for a certain amount of time, you become very intimate with their thinking. And so their humor and their playfulness and their erudition becomes very familiar to you on that certain level. And so I think on that level, I have a sense of how Ashbury might have answered something. But I, th- I think he was a very elusive character. And I think for other people that they have anecdotes, but I think in some ways that, you know, like his poetry, he was quite hard to pin down. On the one hand, you know, he had this all-American childhood and there were some narratives that can be told, you know, he went to Harvard, he was kind of this avant-garde set, and then he became one of the main best-known American poets at the end of the 20th century. Ashbury the man, I think, is wildly and complicated. And in a certain sense, I don't think the job of biography is necessarily to to know a subject in the way that maybe psychoanalysis might know a subject, but rather to illuminate the world in which they move. Mm-hmm. Do you think Ashbery, if he heard that description coming from his future biographer, you know, that you understood him as a poet, but not so much as a person, do you think he would have been disappointed by that? Or would he have said, ah, yes, that's perfect. That's that's exactly how I would want it to be. I think the latter to a certain extent. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think he would have been delighted not to have been known too much. It was not like he was unfamiliar with the language of psychoanalysis. He had a Chilean psychoanalyst in the 1970s. He was kind of interested in it. And I think his work is informed by it in different ways. But in the sense that he liked ambivalence, which is a concept that is very much at the heart of psychoanalysis. And I think that ambivalence is key. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's one of the things that poetry and psychoanalysis both give us, is this, this language of sitting with uncertainty, this idea of negative capability. So I think for Ashbury... Not knowing a subject would have been the better position. That said, he has a book called Other Traditions, which is with his Charles Norton lectures at Harvard that he gave in the early 1990s. And he writes these beautiful short essays on these six eccentric writers and weaves together kind of elements of their biography and kind of readings of their poems. So I think in some ways that he does when he writes about other people, there is this tentative and quite getting to know a subject. Um, in relation to their work, but not trying to know them intimately as a person, which always seems like an imposition, I suppose. Mm. It almost seems like kind of a reasonable middle ground to sort of say, yes, the the life is important to the work, and it can be of interest to the reader, and it, it can be part of all of this, but that doesn't mean that you have to go overboard and only read things that way or only read things through a prism of, of well, I need to, to figure out how this poem fits into this person's life. And, and, you know, it's not an autobiography. What would be the need for poetry if that's all it was supposed to do? He seems to be staking a claim for, well, I could give you everything, but then where would that leave us? Where would that leave my poetry? And what would be the point of it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very well put. I mean, if, if autobiography is what explains it all, poetry is there to open up the gaps. And I mean, you know, when I was talking about the confessionals earlier, didn't, I don't want to be too reductive because I think they do open up the gaps of that kind of autobiographical narrative in different ways. But I think what Ashbury is absolutely invested in the idea that 
okay, well, poetry is the language that is there to help us live out our autobiography in a way that is not A to Z, that's allowing for those gaps and omissions, that's allowing for those lines that feel like gaps and omissions, that, that is about finding new ways to inhabit certain forms and life stories. We have this poem called Sunus Mended, and this idea of a life going back to the beginning, that there isn't necessarily this forward progression. We're constantly learning. Um, that's this idea that maturity is an illusion. Uh, the best thing is to stay in the game, to keep going. Um, one of the ways to keep going is keep being interested in things. And I think that idea of being interested in things is central to science and Ashby's work. And being allowed to be taken by what grabs you rather than what you should be interested in. And I, I think for both of them that they were trying to write poetry and then autobiography that would be interesting. And that was partly by doing something that was not expected of them, by constantly trying to tune in to the sound of language and to the, the way that we make sense of our lives mm. and to give us the sense that we can go on creating new poems, new life stories. Mm. Okay. Well, a fascinating life and a fascinating body of work. The book is called John Ashbery, A Critical Life. Jess Cotton, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And finally today, I say we have a little extra time, so let's do a My Last Book. This is with David Vandenberg, a contemporary poet who was here to talk about his life growing up, hunting and fishing in the Florida swamps, and everything he's done since then, including his poetry. His chapbook, Love Letters from an Arsonist, has been very well received, so... After our conversation about Florida and his poetry, I asked him a special question. Okay, we're joined now by David Vandenberg, author of the poetry collection Love Letters from an Arsonist. David, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. Oof. The last book... (laughs) that I will ever read. I think I would have to go with something by Vonnegut. Ooh. mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Just, I think Sirens of Titan, maybe. Oh, okay. So, you know, Sirens of Titan, I connected with it so much because you have this idea of how the story is going, right? That the coincidences are so weird. Like people are sort of, are being pulled in these odd directions but then of course it's actually all just completely out of their control right mm-hmm. and they're just they're just trying to make the best of it as they're sort of destined to make these decisions and i love the final line where it's like this poor guy who's been pulled all over the universe sort of like separated from the woman that he loved he's completely alone he was left on a, a bus stop sort of in the middle of winter in indiana and a spaceship comes down to, to pick him up and there's this exchange where it's we're, we're going to paradise now, said Constant. I'm going to get into paradise. Don't ask me why, old sport, said Stoney. 
but somebody up there likes you. And I was just like, I read that and I just, it just felt so warm, you know, yeah, like so, so warm and so encouraging that like, even though the guy's story was completely out of his own control, just being dragged along by fate to still have this really great feeling at the end of it yeah i just i just love that so if i if i'm gonna die i'll just make sure to pull that out and then read that passage and i'll be like okay i feel better now i would say that reading a book by vonnegut is wonderful as the last thing that you would do on this part of the world on this side of things and meeting kurt vonnegut is maybe the the first thing that i hope to do on the other side Just immediately kick down the pearly gates. Where is he? Where's Kurt? (laughs) I kind of suspect that he'd be waiting outside, you know, welcoming people in. Yeah, yeah. Okay, David Vandenberg, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Of course, thank you. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to David Vandenberg. For joining us with that cameo appearance, my thanks to the Empress Emily Dickinson. She can be the Empress of Jack Wilson anytime she likes, although many might say that Calvary would be more enticing, a sunnier prospect. (laughs) My thanks also to Jess Cotton. Of course, you can find her book on John Ashbery at bookstores everywhere. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.